Hello, thanks for tuning into America Explained. Just before the episode begins, I want to tell you about a new venture I've launched that I'm very excited about, an America Explained newsletter. You can sign up for free using the link in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app. If you sign up for this free newsletter, then a few times a month, you're going to receive directly into your email inbox piece of writing by me about some important issue in American foreign policy or politics. The pledge I make with this newsletter is never to spam you. I'm not going to be just, you know, looking for excuses to to put out posts. But when something really important happens, when there's some deeper context that you really need to know in order to understand what's in the news right now, you're going to find a post from me in your inbox about that. It's also an opportunity for us to build a community around America Explained. I've I've been so overwhelmed by the response that I've had to this podcast, the number of people who've been listening to it. And the newsletter is a place for us to come together as a community where we can talk, we can post comments, have discussions about the issues of the day. So please check it out. Again, the link is in the show notes in your podcast app for this episode, or you can point your web browser to amerex.substack.com. That's A-M-E-R-E-X. E-R-E-X substack.com. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, a podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Welcome to another episode of America Explained. Today I'm going to be talking about AUKUS, this new security arrangement between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States. It's ruffling feathers all over the world. It's united China and many European nations in opposition to it. And and how often does that happen with something in international politics? I'm going to explain what the agreement is, like what actually is AUKUS. Then I'm also going to spend some time talking about where this came from and the kind of the deeper history behind this agreement, because it can seem a bit like it came from nowhere. It, It certainly seemed to really surprise France. France has seen itself kind of brushed off, pushed aside by Australia and the US in favour of this new alliance between Australia and the US and the UK, kind of the Anglophone countries. France was so annoyed that it recalled its ambassadors from Australia and the United States. That's a really big step that countries usually only take with their adversaries, so it was a really big deal that France did this. It was also kind of funny that France didn't withdraw its ambassador from the UK, (laughs) basically saying that London isn't important enough to be punished in that way, in the way that uh, they they struck out against Australia and the US. But that aside, this caused a a pretty big rupture in transatlantic relations, in relations between the US and Europe. So there must have been something really important that Washington wanted to achieve here if they were willing to risk that kind of breach with, with close allies in Europe. So what is AUKUS? Well, it's fundamentally a security agreement between these three countries, Australia, the US and the UK. A lot of it is focused on the sharing of military technology. So the thing that the news, um, you know, the media is focused on the most is the sharing of nuclear submarine technology with the Australians. Now, that doesn't mean submarines that are armed with nuclear weapons, which would be a, a much, much bigger deal. But it means instead submarines that have a nuclear reactor on board as their means of propulsion, like as what powers them. And nuclear submarines, submarines that are powered by a nuclear reactor, 
are able to stay underwater for a much, much, much longer amount of time than conventionally powered submarines. They can stay submerged for months. That makes them much, much more militarily effective because they're so much harder to detect. They don't have to keep coming up to the surface or, or refueling, which means that, you know, one, one of the main things that the militaries have submarines to do is to kind of track and potentially eliminate enemy surface ships, you know, things like destroyers and frigates and carriers. Nuclear submarines can easily track enemy ships for a really long period of time, and, you know, they have a much better chance of destroying those ships because they're so much harder to detect. And this, this security agreement is ultimately aimed at China. You know, it doesn't say that in the text of the agreement, and, and no one, you know, said on the record that this is the country it's aimed at, but it's very, very clear, you know, that, that this is the case. So we have to understand this agreement in the context of, of this growing military competition between the US and its allies and China in the Asia-Pacific. And that competition is mostly kind of centered on the ocean, on the sea. You know, the, the US isn't going to be fighting a war on land with China anytime soon, because that would be, you know, well, there's a whole host of reasons why, why that's the case. I mean, firstly, the US learned not to fight land wars in Asia, because they're very difficult, and the US has a track record of losing them. And just also because, actually, the, the kind of things that are contested between the US and China at the moment are mostly to do with the navigation of the oceans, trade on the oceans, and particularly the South China Sea, this big, big um, area of water that abuts many, many nations in Southeast Asia and China, which China claims as its own sovereign territory. And, and, you know, as you've probably seen in the news, it's been doing a lot to militarize this body of water, building artificial islands, and then building military installations on them. And the, the fear is that, you know, in Washington, that in the event of a war with China, China would be able to take control of this body of water through which about a quarter of the world's shipborne trade passes. And that would be so, so disruptive to the global economy. So by helping Australia develop its own naval capabilities and particularly to put into the field, or we should say into the water, these advanced submarines, America's increasing the amount of allied military assets that it has available, you know, in the event of a conflict with China. That's why these nuclear submarines are really at the center of this agreement. China struggles with anti-submarine warfare. It's something that it's not very good at. So this is really targeted against a, a particular vulnerability that China is understood to have. You know, particularly as China's getting much, much better at um, what we call anti-access and area denial military operations. So this basically means that it's going to become increasingly hard for American ships and the ships of its allies to operate near China's coastline because China has such advanced missile technology that's, that's able to take those ships down. But submarines are harder to track they're harder for the Chinese to eliminate. So in the event of a conflict, these submarines are going to be really, really valuable. The submarines aren't the, the only thing that's in this agreement, though. You know, there's also other areas of military cooperation between the US, the UK, and Australia that have been worked on. This includes, you know, kind of blue sky stuff like artificial intelligence and quantum computing. It also includes steps to increase what's called the interoperability of the militaries of these three countries. So basically, in the event of a conflict, how easy will it be for them to work together against China, you know, to integrate their various technologies, communications technologies, for instance, so that their ships can work alongside each other, you know, as effectively as possible. 
this all you know AUKUS also includes provisions for the additional deployment and rotation of American military assets to Australia as well. So that means that U.S. military aircraft are increasingly going to be based in Australia and rotating through Australia, which gives, again, the U.S. more strike capability in the region. And then on top of that, the countries are going to be conducting more military exercises together, and we may see more U.S. uh, soldiers and Marines deployed to Darwin, which is a military base that that the U.S. uh, uses in Australia. Now, at this point you might be wondering well what does this have to do with France right well the reason it has something to do with France is because France already had a contract with Australia to provide Australia with submarines it was worth something like 55 billion euros and France was going to provide Australia not with nuclear powered submarines but with conventionally powered submarines this much weaker, less useful type of submarine. That contract, the the French company hadn't been delivering on time or on schedule. That's not actually unusual at all for defense contracts. That's more the norm than the exception. But the Australians had come to think that by the time that these conventionally powered French submarines were delivered, they would be basically obsolete. And so it was much, much more useful to get rid of the French contract and then instead go with this American offer instead and do that as part of a strategy of really deepening American military cooperation with Australia across the board. This is notable because it shows that Australia is now really committing itself to an alliance with America against China. Australia's been in a a funny position over the last few decades where, as a country, it generally identifies pretty strongly with you know, the the Anglosphere Western powers like Britain, like Canada, like America, but it's been increasingly economically dependent on China. So a huge part of the Australian economy is, is exporting things to China, particularly primary commodities like iron. And this has, you know, made Australia pretty nervous about upsetting China. If, if so much of your economy is dependent on being able to trade with China, then you really don't want to annoy Beijing because then Beijing can put tariffs on, on you and, and, and make you know your economy go south pretty quickly. But what's happened over the last few years, I think, is that there's been a fairly decisive shift within Australia, realizing basically that between these two commitments to the Western alliance and to this economic relationship with China, that basically if if they were going to lean too heavily into the economic relationship with China, then they really risk becoming just kind of like a supplicant power, like a client state of China. And they don't want that to happen. And, and China recently has been, you know, actually really flexing its, its economic muscles against Australia, threatening Australia and putting tariffs on, on its products. And I think rather than scaring Australia into submission, which is probably what China hoped, this made the Australians realize that this situation can't continue, that they can't continue with this dependence on China and trying to kind of live in this halfway house but between the two superpowers. So this is them decisively committing to the alliance with America, at least for the foreseeable future. That involved really annoying the French um, and that trade-off that America is also making where it's increasingly kind of willing to do what it thinks is necessary in Asia, even if that annoys countries in Europe and harms its alliances in Europe, is something that I'm going to talk about more after the break. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow.
so to understand AUKUS from the American perspective, you really have to go back at least as far as the Obama administration. So the Obama administration had this policy that it called the pivot to Asia. The basic idea here was that since 9-11, America had been overly focused on the Middle East and it hadn't been paying enough attention to the Asia Pacific, which is the region of the world that pretty much everyone agrees is going to become the center of the global economy or at least a, a very, very, very important center of the global economy over the next century. Obama came into office determined to wind down America's wars in the Middle East and to increasingly focus American attention on the Asia Pacific, where he saw the most important challenges to American security in the future, but also the most important opportunities for trade and for growing the American economy and for forming new alliances. Obama's pivot to Asia, in the end, didn't really consist of that much. You know, it was actually often criticized for being more of just a policy on, that existed on paper rather than one that the administration actually implemented. It did involve the opening of this uh, military base in Australia at Darwin, where, or the, the opening of American presence at this military base in Australia, which is now an important foundation for AUKUS. And it involved the rebalancing of and, and the sending of more American naval assets to the region as well. But Obama didn't conceive of this entirely or even primarily as a military policy. And actually really what I would see as the centerpiece of the pivot to Asia was the Trans-Pacific Partnership which was this enormous trade deal that had been negotiated between lots of countries in Asia, although not China, but lots of countries in Asia, the United States, and then also countries in Latin America, were going to come together to form what would have been the biggest free trade area in, in the world to really increase trade between them. It was supposed to raise labor and environmental standards in Asian economies as well. And it was really supposed to be kind of become not just about trade, but also the creation of a group of countries that would have a common interest in upholding the, you know, what we often call the American-backed liberal international order of open trade and relatively liberal domestic politics. China was excluded from this agreement, and it was really very explicitly, even though, as with August, no one really said this on the record, but this was seen as a way of kind of hemming China in and containing China within Asia. If America could draw together most of China's neighbors into the TPP, then China would be faced basically with going along with the international system as it currently existed. So as China became more powerful, the hope was that it would be forced to kind of cooperate peacefully with the countries of the TPP rather than potentially threatening them militarily or with economic coercion. And China was even invited to join the TPP if it wanted to, but, but joining the TPP would have meant all sorts of domestic reforms that China had to carry out. So this was potentially, if it had worked really well, a way of persuading China that in order to participate in this big trade agreement, which was really going to help its prosperity and, and help it kind of keep up with the global economy in the 21st century, China might have been forced to make domestic reforms that Americans really, really wanted China to make in, in the way that it ran its economy and its politics. So the TPP was a really ambitious project 
it completely ran aground in the politics of the 2016 election because trade deals were becoming increasingly toxic in American politics, particularly in the Rust Belt swing states that are really, really important in presidential elections. Trade deals are kind of blamed for causing deindustrialization, putting people out of work, making it easy for companies, corporations to basically offshore jobs to elsewhere in the world and take them away from Americans. So TPP became something that was really politically toxic in that election. Hillary Clinton wouldn't commit to to going along with it, to passing it, although I think if she'd been elected into office, she probably would have found a way to ultimately to implement TPP. But when Donald Trump got into office, he, within his first year, withdrew America from it, and then America's participation in, in TPP was was dead, essentially. The, the organization actually lives on. It's, it's continued to exist and, and, and been brought into existence without America, but it no longer has this kind of really, really, massively important role in global politics just because the US isn't participating in it. The, the Trump administration, which was the one that came next, as, as you might remember, I don't think any of us can forget that, was had a kind of ambiguous stance towards this idea of rebalancing American power towards Asia. On the one hand, the Trump administration was really, really clear that it considered China to be America's number one geopolitical adversary and, and, and really clear that it wanted to do something about what it saw as the threat of China. This mainly expressed itself in the trade war that Trump started with China. What Trump didn't do was move towards greater military cooperation or much of a greater American military presence in the Asia-Pacific. If you remember, one of Trump's kind of bugbears, something that he complained about all the time, was that he felt America's allies took America for granted and basically ripped it off. So he would complain constantly, for instance, about the cost of the American troops that were based in South Korea. He'd constantly be threatening to withdraw troops from abroad to bring them home. He really wasn't talking about sending more troops or engaging in more cooperation with allies. He was really just focused on, you know, he basically had this idea that America's allies are ripping America off. We've got to make them pay. We've got to make sure we get our due. He wasn't talking about more cooperation, you know, something like AUKUS, for instance. So, Trump, although he was so belligerent towards China, he didn't really have any kind of strategy for working with allies to contain China. You know, he'd got rid of TPP, he wasn't interested in alliances in general, he was always undermining them. So during Trump, there's just basically this, this period of confusion and ambiguity in American policy where America has been so belligerent towards China, but it's not really doing anything in a, in a rational way, except for, I guess, the trade war, if, if you consider that rational, but that's another story. But it didn't have a strategic plan for the containment of China. So the pivot, which had been at least a kind of unifying idea behind America's policy towards the Asia-Pacific, there was nothing similar to that in the Trump administration. So Trump, in, in a way, represents a kind of wasted four years for America to really get its allies together and build these alliance systems and this network of cooperation around the Asia-Pacific. And AUKUS is a pretty big move by the Biden administration back in that direction. 
but it's really angered the, fr the French and it's worried a lot of European countries as well. One of the reasons that the Obama administration, I think, started de-emphasizing the military aspects of the pivot to Asia was because by emphasizing those aspects, they were starting to really worry the Europeans. You have to remember that at this time, you know, in, in the Obama administration, Russia invaded Georgia in 2008 and then it invaded Ukraine in 2014. And this scene during this time, and, and indeed today as well, has been a serious security threat to Europe, particularly to the Baltic nations of NATO that are seen as under threat, threat from Russia. And to, to have this policy which basically said, we consider the Asia-Pacific to be the most important region in the world right now, we're going to increasingly draw down our military assets from elsewhere and put them in the Asia-Pacific, really, really worried a lot of Europeans that basically they were going to get left behind. Kurt Campbell, who was an important official in Obama's State Department when it came to Asian affairs, and he's now Biden's top White House official for the Asia-Pacific, Kurt Campbell wrote a book in 2016 where he said, we're not pivoting to Asia away from Europe, but we're pivoting to Asia with Europe. Basically, we want Europe to help us carry out this pivot. He said that Europe has, you know, a lot of economic power, a lot of cultural power, has a lot of sway in international institutions. And we want Europe to really help us with this pivot to Asia and, and help us, you know, project power and influence into the Asia Pacific in the future. Now, you could be cynical and dismiss those words even when he wrote them as really kind of diplomatic nicety and say that what was always really going to matter was who was able to project hard power into the region, which is where ultimately the US-China competition is, is going. And I think in the intervening years especially, the idea has really taken root in Washington that China needs militarily containing, so economic power and cultural power and international institutions just aren't going to cut it. And what really matters now is the ability to generate military assets, assets and deploy military assets to the Asia-Pacific. And over that same period, it, it, it's become kind of clear, and I, I think this was always clear, but certainly nothing has changed, that Europe is just never really going to be able to do that. France is actually the country that probably has the greatest claim of any European country to be a resident power in the Asia-Pacific. France has numerous overseas territories in the region. It has several thousand soldiers and, and some ships that are based in the region. But even, you know, that presence was something that Washington was willing to just basically brush aside, you know, that they, they, they didn't care how much they annoyed the French when they had the opportunity to really deepen this alliance with Australia. And the reason for that is, is it's just simple geography. Europe is a really, really long way from the Asia-Pacific. It spends a very small fraction of its GDP on defense, and it has security problems at home, particularly to do with Russia. So I just don't think European countries are ever going to be reliable security partners for Washington in the Asia-Pacific, or if they are, they can never be the centerpiece of those alliances. So I think this has been a real wake-up call for European countries who, you know, after Trump, they really hoped that Biden was going to bring about this kind of new dawning of transatlantic unity and that the European countries were going to feel valued and listened to and important again in, in international politics rather than just being criticized mercilessly by Trump as they were before. 
But what we're actually seeing is that Europe is just becoming less important to the United States. And I think that's actually a trend that goes back a really long way. We can look back, for instance, to the Iraq war in 2003, when the Bush administration was really, really annoyed that European countries like France and Germany opposed the invasion of Iraq, whereas countries in Eastern Europe like Poland supported it. And they really diplomatically punished those countries in in Western Europe. Donald Rumsfeld derisively referred to them as old Europe, whereas he said new Europe were the post-communist countries who were the ones who happened to support American foreign policy. And I think what this really shows is that Europe as a region is just becoming less important in and of itself to the Americans. And what increasingly matters is, is Europe able to generate hard power and generate useful assets for Washington that will help it with problems in other regions. So the countries that weren't able to help or weren't willing to help in the Middle East during the war on terror got brushed aside. And now the countries that aren't able or willing to help in the Asia Pacific are getting brushed aside. And You know, a lot of European countries are trying to track this kind of third way between China and the United States. They, you know, have very strong economic links with China. They don't want to annoy China. So they're not willing to go all in on an alliance with the Americans that's anti-Beijing, whereas the Australians have signaled their ability and willingness to do that. So this is, you know, we're really seeing global alliance patterns settle down and and shake out for the coming century here. And what we're seeing is that Europe occupies this kind of ambiguous position in a way between China and America, whereas countries in Asia, and, and, you know, particularly in this instance, Australia, are really faced with this choice of do they strongly commit to one side or the other? And Australia has made that choice. And that's why Washington's been willing to reward it with this alliance and why it hasn't really been very concerned about annoying the French and, and, and you know, causing offence to European sensibilities. So that's all, Kiss. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and please remember to check out the America Explained Substack. You can find a link to that in the show notes or you can point your web browser to amerex, well, that's A-M-E-R-E-X dot substack dot com amer.substack.com. If you subscribe for the free newsletter, then a couple of times a month, you'll receive written posts from me providing insight into topics in American politics and foreign policy. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.